Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Captain Marvel. Grunt is a good look for you. Did you have a rough day, Agent Fury? I'm gonna need clarification on this space invasion. Scrolls are infiltrating your planet. They're shapeshifters. Okay, prove you're not a scroll. That's a photon blast. And? A scroll cannot do that. I'm just supposed to take your word for that. We are Kree. Strong. United. You have to let go of the past. I don't remember my past. Control it. I have this power. But I don't know where it came from. I've never seen anything like her. You think you can find others? She's just the beginning. You've come a long way. But you're not as strong as you think. What is this? The S.H.I.E.L.D. logo. Does announcing your identity on clothing help with the covert part of your job? Said the space soldier who was wearing a rubber suit. Get tickets now. Welcome to a very long-awaited show. The two of us have been anticipating Carol's cinematic debut since long before Marvel themselves even announced they were making it. Now, I've lightly dipped in and out of other people's reviews and discussions all week, and they seem to be divided into three categories. One, people happy about the film. There are plenty of these, especially on my Twitter feed, and I've read some glowing articles praising elements of the film. The second category that's getting way too much visibility for the tiny sliver of the population it represents, almost as though the algorithm pushes to the top, not the cream, not the most insightful, but the most performatively angry, is a bunch of dudes absolutely furious that the film exists, though they haven't seen it. And the third kind of video is the generally reliable film dudes on YouTube. And the consensus there is that the film is good, but it has problems. I'm getting a lot of like with reservations there. Now, these guys are clearly and manifestly not in the grip of hate-fueled obsession, but also not especially thrilled by Carol's initial escapade. And that's absolutely fine if they didn't see anything much of merit in there. But it does make our job more challenging, because there is definitely weaker elements at play here, but Sharon and I do see a whole heap of merit, and we don't want to sound like them when we talk about its shortcomings. I mean, we don't want to sound like your average YouTube dude ever. What's up, fan squad? It's your boy Alex here. But in this case, it's pretty important. This also extends to a lot of the professional reviews written for the kind of publications that are measured by Rotten Tomatoes. The overall critical consensus stands at 79% as of time of recording, which is low for a Marvel movie. And something that Bob Chipman said resonates here. It's not so much that Marvel movies all feel the same, but the responses three times a year are starting to blend into one another. Which is absolutely not a criticism of the reviewers themselves, more a reflection of the landscape. Marvel is what spikes the interest curve. It's what people want to read about and watch and listen to. It's a big thing that we're all experiencing at once. So sometimes you'll get reviewers who really don't want to talk about capes feeling obliged to. This is why you get quite so many think pieces about superhero fatigue, because many grown-up professional writers are sick and tired of talking about these kids' films and having to think up new angles. 
And if you've got a prestigious film YouTube channel and you're your own boss, you still end up having to answer to your virtual editor, the algorithm who dictates that your videos on the films of Wes Anderson get way fewer views than your multi-part bemused exploration from the outside of the MCU. I feel for these guys and girls because we have the same number spikes when we talk about Star Wars and Marvel. And like clockwork, they reset a week later when we talk about Cratchit Tiger, Hidden Dragon, or We're Back a Dinosaur Story. But we don't talk about Marvel because we have to, by and large, see our Ant-Man and the Wasp show for what that feels like. A brief for us hour-long discussion on what worked and what didn't. No, on the whole, in general, we love Marvel and Star Wars, and it is secure love, so we try to make these shows feel special, especially when the characters in them are meaningful to us, and in this case, Carol definitely fits the bill. Captain Marvel is a great fit for our show, in particular because we set out from the very beginning to talk about movies dismissed as shallow popcorn that have a lot more going on under the surface. So, In an attempt not to sound like the dudes who seem to have missed that the major impact for this film is happening to people who aren't them... It's not about you. We are going to start off with some positives, then we're going to deal with the flaws, then we're going to go even deeper into the richest subtextual elements. And we have gone out of our way to fill this show with women, to get as much of a female perspective as possible. With us tonight, we have Maya Santandrea, who, full disclosure, I'm sure we're going to find out is the secret breakout star of Avengers Endgame. Hello, Maya. Hello. That's absolutely not true, but thank you for your (laughs) faith in me. (laughs) Welcome back, Muppet Podcasting, Mackenzie Easton. Higher, further, faster. And from Comic Channel Sequentially Yours, regular guest voice on our show, Debbie Morse. Hello. Hello, Debbie. Now, I decided not to write a lengthy thing about Captain Marvel because I figured that everything I had to say would get voiced in the discussion. Then again, I said that about the Lego movie too. But I did want to address one thing that dudes complained about in the run-up to release. Some dudes, that is. I saw quite a bit of, why do you need Captain Marvel? We have strong female characters already. Ellen Ripley and Sarah Connor exist. So does Alice in Resident Evil, so stop complaining, we don't need any more. Sorry, not you, Homer. But you let in Homer Glumplet. <laughs> it says no Homers. We're allowed to have one. Now this is a fabulously fucking stupid stance to take when you have even the slightest idea of how storytelling works on the chain down through the ages. And that thing I said before about other people not being you. You psychotic toddler who still hasn't realised he's not the centre of the universe, but is starting to get worried that this might be the case. Let's have a dose of perspective right now, because that's one of the things we do best here at School of Movies. Offer perspective. I've gone back 40 years and compiled a list of every major science fiction, fantasy and superhero movie with a major male leading role. And an accompanying list, yep, it took a long while, an accompanying list of all the major leading female roles. I want you to imagine, everyone at home, that we have two big bowls in front of us. And every time I name a male role, you can toss a blue M&M into the bowl on the left. And every time I name a female action lead, toss a red M&M into the bowl on the right. Visualize those bowls. Picture them filling up and not filling up in your head. Some of these choices are ensemble pieces, like the obvious Star Wars, but you have to ask yourself each time, who is our audience perspective character? Who makes the big journey? Who goes from being a farm boy to being given a medal by a princess for blowing up the enemy base? 
on Leia's best day. She would take a long drag on her cigarette and tell you in that wonderful gravelly voice that I miss so much, Let me tell you right now, it's not the goddamn princess. In all of these male-led movies, they have helpers and support characters, and the same in all the female-led movies. And most of them wouldn't be able to get to the end alive without that help. There's very few films with main characters that get no help from anyone, because it would be boring to watch. I suppose, aside from very specific Robinson Crusoe stories like Castaway, but even the modern update, The Martian... Matt Damon needs the guys and girls at NASA to bring him home, but in nearly all of the stories, there's a protagonist, male or female, and don't even get me started on how few movies exist with transgender, gay, or gender-fluid leads. Baby Steps. We're still getting women approved. We'll get there, everyone. If we survive the next century. There are other ensemble pieces like the Avengers and Guardians of the Galaxy that I'm leaving out because they're about a group, usually mostly male, though Charlie's Angels and the Lady Ghostbusters are an exception. I've also left out straight action or thriller films like Die Hard, comedies like Bridesmaids, dramas like Rain Man, largely because I'm making a focused point about the male dominance of the space of sci-fi, fantasy and superheroes. Otherwise, our numbers would be too diffuse, my researching would take months, and we'd be here all week reeling off thousands of movies until nobody cared anymore. Also, it's kind of our wheelhouse, fantasy, sci-fi, superheroes. And because of this focus choice, you may also hear totally crap films that have no place on this list because they fail to have any cultural impact and are just plain bad and forgettable. That's because in order to fill up the women's list and play fair, rather than saying they never get any roles, I had to mention barbed wire. I had to mention blood rain. It better illustrates the slim pickings that female movie viewers have had for their on-screen avatars. Also, since so many of those films with female leads were designed around the male gaze and to appeal to unimaginative teenage boys, it paints an even more dismal picture. So, actually, let's start with the women, get the state of play, and move on to the men, to better illustrate how famished for Carol a side of the world has been that often doesn't get to voice that desire, since film blogging, film podcasting, film Twitter, and film YouTube are also male-dominated, and every woman has to fight ten times as hard in order to just achieve the same thing. To put things in perspective, what I'm doing right now is not a million miles shy of what Anita Sarkeesian did when she released a whole bunch of videos on how the princess keeps getting kidnapped throughout video gaming history. And I've got a feeling I'm not going to get anywhere near as many death threats as her. And before we start this, we are not saying it is bad that so many films star men. We love so many of these films. Not barbed wire. And not, uh, what's another one that we don't love? Um, Chain Reaction. (laughs) Just picking it out of a hat. But, okay, in many cases, we would not change them at all. This is about making it clear how many goes men have had and how few goes women have had. So here goes. Okay, I'm not going to read the years, although I did also add the years. I'm also not going to read the amount of times that they had that role. But I'll tell you at the end, because there's several of these where the guy came back and did that same role again. So, Ellen Ripley... Sarah Connor, Supergirl, Sarah from Labyrinth, Madeline and Helen from Death Becomes Her, I thought of that one today, Tank Girl, Barb Wire, Ellie Arroway from Contact, Lara Croft, Alice from Resident Evil, Celine from Underworld, The Bride from Kill Bill, Alexa Woods from Alien vs. Predator, Catwoman, Rain from Blood Rain, Electra, Aeon Flux, Ultraviolet, this was a bad time for women, (laughs) 
Bella Swan in Twilight, Shaw from Prometheus, Katniss Everdeen, Ryan Stone from Gravity. I'm going to say Gravity's sci-fi because the amount of times that Neil deGrasse Tyson has gone, well, this is bollocks. Emily from a film which no one's seen called Coherence. Tris Pryor from Divergent. Lucy, Jupiter Jones. Susan Cooper from Spy. Michelle from 10 Cloverfield Lane. Jin Erso from Rogue One. Makoto from Ghost in the Shell. Wonder Woman. Charlie Watson from Bumblebee. Alita. And Carol Danvers in Captain Marvel. Uh, did you get Dr. Louise Banks from Arrival? Ooh, very nice. good. Nice. Good yep. catch. Good catch. Amy Adams. If you do look at the years, nearly half this list is 2012 onwards. Yeah. And yep. the other half covers... 1979 through to 2011. Uh, or 2008. 2008. So that's 80, 90... 31 30 years. Thirty years, and then the rest of them cover the. And not. over those thirty years, you ladies had nineteen count 'em female heroes on screen. That's did less than one a year. Did we get Barbarella? I did not mention Barbarella or Annihilation. Thank you. Now, many of you may be going, "Where's Furiosa? Where's Ray?" You're absolutely right. There also exists a third category of balanced male-female roles in films where both of their stories are carried out with equal weight rather than one serving as an assistant to the other. You've got Jen and Kira from The Dark Crystal, uh, Bud and Lindsay from The Abyss, Corbin Dallas and Lilo from The Fifth Element, John Steed and Emma Peel from The Avengers, Rick and Evie in The Mummy, and Darrow and King Kong. Eh. Uh, Lincoln and Jordan from The Island. Again, eh. mm. Riley and Marco in Pacific Rim, uh, William Cage and Rita Vratasky from Edge of Tomorrow, Max Rokotansky and Furiosa from Mad Max Fury Road, Ray and Kylo Ren and Ant-Man and the Wasp, and then there's Hester and Tom from Mortal Engines. Now, the reason I put these up there is because, you know what I mentioned before about, like, following the characters, and, like, we start with the character and, like, follow their story? These are strong female lead roles, and there's a definite balance there where it's like, okay, here is Max, here is Furiosa, their paths are going to cross, they go through this journey together, they keep each other alive... It's worth noting as well that in most of those pairs, and some of them are outright bad movies, as you already acknowledged, but in most of those pairs, it's not a case of the guy is hastily thrown in there because they don't think men will come and see this film if it's entirely female-based. Yeah, no. it's uh, that, that one's written... The, the way that I write New Century, almost always there's a male-female pairing. And to do that, I've had to break the mould. Since I'm heavily inspired by cinema... I've had to change how women are put forward in my experience on screen. Of those, what is this, like 14 movies, five of them have the woman kidnapped. <sighs> yeah, there's this Le Sai. And the whole thing about <laughs> Ray, like this screaming match about Ray having her own agency and Mary Sue. She's in a movie that's very much male-female balanced. It's not like she's like, right, I'm here to kick ass and take names and just dominates the whole way through the movie. The trilogy of the new films is about Ray and Kylo Ren, mm. manifestly. However, surveys... The, the guys just hate the fact that Kylo Ren's the guy. Surveys and polls have been done to explore the idea of how much people think is a fair voice uh -huh. for women to have. Like, I mean, they were looking at executive business rooms and stuff like that. And generally speaking, what they've found is that when women speak for about 25% of the time, men think they have spoken for half the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
what they have different bars yeah. on what's fair. Absolutely. Yeah. This is not a hashtag not all men, hashtag not all women. It's a, it's a generalisation <laughs> yeah, and it's it, messy. But it, it kind of makes the point that if women get, again, generally speaking, if women get any space, there is kind of a, a an impulsive reaction that goes, they're taking all the space. Hmm. Yeah, oh, well, why, do they, why do they get to say all the things? Oh, my God. Yeah. 25% specifically is the number where the majority of men think that women are equal, then it makes sense that most groups of four in cartoon shows and TV shows growing up had three men and one girl. And one girl. And that may be why. <laughs> okay. Let me do the men's list. I'll be as quick as I possibly can. I have to. Okay, right. Here we go. James Bond. Luke Skywalker, Superman, Mad Max, Hawk the Slayer, Flash Gordon, Indiana Jones, Perseus from Clash of the Titans, Deckard from Blade Runner, Conan the Barbarian, McCready from The Thing, Prince Colwyn from Krull, Billy Peltzer from Gremlins, Sam Lowry from Brazil, Marty McFly from Back to the Future, Connor McLeod from Highlander, Jack Burton from Big Trouble in Little China, <gasps> Dutch from Predator, Robocop, He-Man, George Nada from They Live, Bill and Ted, that's a twofer, Batman, 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 Batman. The Ninja Turtles, Doug Quaid from Total Recall, Abraxas, Guardian of the Universe, Harrigan from Predator 2, Alex Furlong from Free Jack, we're in a bad time now folks, John Henry Brennick from Fortress, John Spartan from Demolition Man, Max Walker from Time Cop, Judge Dredd, The Mariner from Waterworld, and for that matter, three Robin Hoods. And three King Arthurs. Johnny Monomic, James Cole from 12 Monkeys, Eddie Kasselvich from Chain Reaction, not a great film, Agent J from Men in Black, Austin Powers, Jerome Morrow from Gattaca, John Murdoch from Dark City, Zorro from The Mask of Zorro, Sean Archer from Face Off, Blade, Anakin Skywalker, Neo, Andrew from Bicentennial Man, and we're finally at the year 2000. Wolverine, Adam Gibson from The Sixth Day, Riddick, David Dunn from Unbreakable, Harry Potter, Frodo, John Preston from Equilibrium, Spider-Man, Peter Parker, The First of Many, Jack Sparrow, Daredevil, Hulk, Hellboy, Aaron and Abe from Primer, Constantine, Arthur Dent from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, The Doom Guy, Joe Bauer from Idiocracy, Theo Farron from Children of Men. Children of Men, a movie about the fact that women can't give birth anymore, about a woman, and the lead is a dude. It's fine, it's fine. It's a great film, but it's you're not wrong. Film. <laughs> Robert Neville from I Am Legend, Beowulf, Hitman, Robert Kappa from Sunshine, Ghost Rider, Sam Witwicky from Transformers, who is the most important dude on the planet, Speed Racer, Hancock, Iron Man, John Connor in The Terminator now that he's grown up, Jake Sully from Avatar, Percy Jackson, Dastan from Prince of Persia, Don Cobb from Inception, Cooper from Interstellar, Mark Watney from The Martian, Stop Sending People to Rescue Matt Damon, Angier and Borden, from The Prestige. Angier and Borden from The Prestige. And yet more Batman. Kick-Ass, Scott Pilgrim, The Tron Guy, Ang from The Last Airbender, Will Salas from In Time, Theseus from Immortals, Coulter Stevens from Source Code, <gasps> Green Lantern, Hal Jordan, Thor, Caesar from Planet of the Apes. He's an ape, but he's a dude. The Star Trek films are obviously an ensemble piece, but they're about Captain Kirk. 
The X-Men films are by and large ensemble pieces, but they're also by and large about Charles Xavier, Eric Lenscher, and Wolverine. Captain America, Andrew and Matt from Chronicle, Jack Harper from Oblivion, Gary King from The World's End, Cade Yeager from Transformers, again, the most important dude in the world, Thomas from The Maze Runner, John Wick, Ant-Man, Deadpool, Black Panther, Nick Morton from the film The Tom Cruise, Kay from Blade Runner 2049, again, such a brilliant film, such a great female and element, but it's one... about Kay. Can I say of. this because it's a spoiler? No, you can't. Okay. We'll talk about that when we talk about Blade Runner 2049. Fair enough. Davis Sequoia from Rampage, The Rock. I feel like The Rock should have been like all of The Rock's roles. You know he's done a lot that I haven't mentioned. Jason Statham in everything Jason Statham's ever been in, especially The Meg. And while the Fast and Furious films are ensemble pieces, it always seems to be about Dominic Toretto. Han Solo, who was the lead in the Solo film, but also arguably the co-lead in The Empire Strikes Back. Aquaman and Spider-Man Miles. Some of the greatest works of cinema of the past 120 years. In that list you will find many of my all-time favourite movies, but they are all about dudes. And again, looking at the year spread... Whereas with the women, it was like half of them are from the last decade and yeah. then the rest were spread over 30 years. Yeah. This one, you've got between one and seven movies for every single year. Yeah. Hardly any gaps except at the very beginning. And in case you guys are wondering, I also counted the number of times they were on screen as that character in a film where they were actually leading, not just cameos. Like those cameos I just flipped off. So, for example, Tony Stark in uh, Incredible Hulk, I'm not counting that one. 247 films, all told. <laughs> Pretty much every film with Kevin Bacon, you can just automatically add to that list. Run, 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 run. <laughs> yeah. Well, Footloose is still, of course, the greatest film ever made. Um, <laughs> okay, so... I will have none of your pelvic sorcery. <laughs> <laughs> you might notice that a lot of the guys got sequels, remakes, and reimaginings. Looking down the women's list, there is an awful lot of one-offs. Ripley got four films. Sarah Connor got three. Katniss, four. Triss wasn't even able to finish the second half of her third and final book. Celine and Alice got five and six increasingly shitty boy-appeasing underworld and Resident Evil films. All of these relative successes... All of them for women seem marked by the law of diminishing returns and getting worse and worse, while the men get increasingly better films made about them. Iron Man got eight, considering his unusual prominence in the ensemble Avengers films. Tony's the one who grows in Age of Ultron and the original Avengers film and Infinity War. Batman got ten plus films. James Bond got 25 of them and counting. I'm counting James Bond as sci-fi because the amount of crazy gadgets in there and stuff that just keeps happening over and over again in this lunatic world with quite so many supervillains and underground bases. Also, there's some significant audience overlap. Yeah. I mean, if you want to discount James Bond, fine. Take 25 of those away from the grand total. <laughs> it still doesn't make a massive amount of yeah. difference. <laughs> but, but also, some of the very best of these movies came out most recently, including Civil War, Lego Batman, Skyfall, 
called also Wolverine, his last film. Not only the best Wolverine film, but like one of the best films even related to comic books at all. They get better and better. But the girls' films where it's like, look at this girl, she's got guns, get worse and worse. Also, one thing that I really want to mention, I don't know if you've you've had planned to mention this later, but the fact that in this particular genre section, female-led films tend to be expected to stand for all female-led films. And there we have a problem. So when you get crap like Catwoman or Blood Rain or Electra, people go, oh, obviously... Films about female superheroes don't make money. Nobody's It's what allowed Alec Perlmutter to point at Electra and go, there you go, see, women films don't make money. We're not making a Captain Marvel or a Black Widow. Nobody looks at the 1990 Captain America and go, oh, let's not bother then. (laughs) Yeah. Eagle-eared listeners may have picked up on the fact that I left out adventures focusing on children. This is because there's actually a pretty great male-female split most of the time. Likewise, I left out animated movies as they seem to divide the leads up fairly evenly as these are productions where they want to snag families with brothers and sisters. It's only when they grow up that the division seems to really take hold within the milieu of sci-fi. Because then they go, okay, well, girls are only interested in rom-coms, obviously. Also, while I was writing Steamheart, ensemble piece though it may be, I kept putting the duo of Annie Oakley and Abigail Gray together in context that would usually be reserved for two men in an action movie. And I realised that there's almost nothing that represents this on the big screen. Can anyone tell me a film, an action film, with two women as equal leads? Tank Girl is the closest, and Jet Girl doesn't get anywhere near as much screen time as she should. Is it The Heat that's the one with Melissa McCarthy and Sandra Bullock. Yes. That is correct. Yes. Yep, that is. Yeah, and that's, that's more the only female body cop. And it's uh, it's yeah, it's 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 not a sci-fi film uh, at all. But no. uh, yeah, but there there really aren't many at all. I've got uh, the the new remake of Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. The trailer looked pretty damn fun. Mm. Again, that's a comedy though. Yeah, and I I suggested Thelma and Louise, but they don't survive. <laughs> yeah, spoiler. Alert. That's a kind that's, of notable. Come part on, of the statues movie, out yeah. on Thelma and Louise. I think. <laughs> It's not exactly sci-fi, but there's a there's a movie called Debs. It looks very silly on the surface, but when you get into the movie, there's actually a lot more going on. Hmm. It's a bit of a spy thriller type. Kind of, yeah. Film. It was oh, made yeah. by the woman who directed Professor Marston and the Wonder Woman, which is one of oh, my nice. favorite movies cool. ever. Yeah. yeah. I also just thought of The Craft, and I'm not sure if that would fit into this category. Of no, no, yeah, that totally horror, works. But yeah. yeah. There's a, actually, to balance it out, there's an all-male version of The Craft called oh. The Covenant. It's oh. terrible. Right, I would just like and to say, Sebastian Stan. I only watched it because it had Sebastian Stan in it. You only watched it for the so articles. so bad. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, then. Hey, I have no As long as shame. that's cleared up. A far more... <laughs> serious hats on, everyone. A far more shocking statistic is the number of female directors on this list. And let's not just go for all the ones starring women. Well over 300 films, three and a half of them are directed by a woman. Three and a half. Rachel Talele for Tank Girl, Patty Jenkins for Wonder Woman, and a male-female team-up of Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck for Captain Marvel. Also, notably, the Wachowskis with Jupiter Ascending, whom we established almost certainly would not have been given the budget for The Matrix had they been a transgender lady duo of directors in 1999. If two trans ladies had walked into Joel Silver's office and said, we've just done Bound, it cost $6 million, it made $7 million, can we have $63 million to make The Matrix? They'd have gone, no, get out of my office. 
Uh, Especially then. Yeah. Lexi yeah. Alexander did a Punisher movie, I believe. Uh, hang on, is that the Punisher War Zone? Yes, yes. I believe that Sorry, is. Sorry, add that mm-hmm. one there. So hang on, that's three and a half. Are we going to count Jupiter Ascending as well? So yes. four, five and a half. Yay. Out of 300. <laughs> hey, we could take the crumbs where we can. So if you literally lined up every single one of the Spartans in 300 and put a DVD in the hand of each of them, you could get five and a half and go, you can swap them out and put ladies in their place instead. Do you want to count Near Dark? Catherine Bigelow directing Near Dark? It's horror, but I've, I... Honestly, I, I tried mean, to stay out of horror because of the, uh, the there is a mm. major female presence in horror, and that's a big debate to have as well because of mm. what mm-hmm. that female honestly, presence Honestly, I think, means. yeah, oh, in enough. the, in the category that we're specifically looking at, I think that is a separate discussion. It's certainly one that we mm. should have at some stage. Honestly, a couple of the films I mentioned right. intersect. You could definitely mm. say that Aliens are horror, but yeah. the Aliens isn't, mm. or you could... You could it, it's it's kind of this and that, and yeah. but it, it's, it's a, to give you a rough idea of numbers and how people see oh. the sci-fi space. So just Absolutely. when those guys were complaining, ladies, you've got some female leads. You don't need another. Stop making a big deal out of it. And also, make up your mind. Is it either, don't make a big deal out of it, this isn't important, or females don't sell movies? Because, yeah. like, you know, we want to buy lots of tickets. Everyone stop going to see Captain Marvel. Why? Because it's devastating to our case. Basically, yes. <laughs> However, so, yeah, the d- director thing is an imp- appalling statistic. Strictly speaking, it is easier for a woman to go to space as an astronaut for NASA than to win Best Director for shooting a film about it. We are not just talking about leading lady female representations in sci-fi actions here, but female directors, female writers, female producers, female composers. And while ladies tend to thrive in the costuming department, being able to craft outfits chosen by ladies rather than by men is absolutely key to our progress. Oh, make me over. I'm all I want to be. I walk and study. Why else is women working together such an important mechanic in films to get out there? Because the the whole the narrative, so much of the narrative in is in films is that women are competitive against each other and women get jealous and they don't like each other and you know they're they're going to they're going to betray each other and you yeah, almost never see female friendships on screen. They're almost always shown in competition with each other instead of helping each other. Uh, one of the reasons I liked Jessica Jones so much, especially the first season, was because they did that aspect of it so well, showing these two women in a platonic relationship where they had no romantic interest in each other, which is another kind of male gaze thing. Like, oh, if we're going to have two women together, they have to be sexually attracted to each other. That's another thing. Representation is important. I think just representing minorities, representing women, representing any non-white male hetero cisgendered protagonist or characters in general, it's important. It's important to show people that you are represented, you are heard, and that the entertainment we're making is not just for the quote-unquote hate boys 
It's not just for that side of things. It's for everybody. It's for you. It's for the women. It's for the minorities. That side of things is so important. And especially when so many children are going to see these movies, to be able to see themselves in something like Black Panther or uh, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse or Captain Marvel or Wonder Woman, etc. It is so crucial to how they grow and how they interpret the entertainment and the media that they see. One of the things that was so important to me about this was that despite all of the great female characters that I have thoroughly embraced in the genre, there's there was a gap for me. And honestly, I've been waiting for this film for years, and that's not an exaggeration. I... I think I probably really fell deeply personally in love with the MCU with Winter Soldier. And before that, I had, I'd really, really liked them. Don't get me wrong. Liked Iron Man a lot. I thought Incredible Hulk was great. And Avengers was fantastic. But it was Winter Soldier that really made me go, okay, now I am sitting up and paying attention and I am completely and utterly bought in. But I wasn't quite sure what I was waiting for. And... With my way of looking at films in terms of, of with, with the characters specifically breaking them down into facets, for me, there's a personal element to that in that when I am trying to make sense of how I'm feeling about something, I try and break it down into basic emotions. And one of the ways that I do that is to personify them as in Inside Out how it's reflected in that. So projecting those emotions onto a set of characters, I can then see which one clicks, which one feels like, oh yeah, that person would be the most um, responsive and reactive to this particular situation. And that helps me work out my frame of mind and helps me deduce what my overriding emotion is in any given situation. So I happened to click very strongly with the Winter Soldier team. So, okay, (laughs) bear with me on this one because it's going to get a little wavery, but it makes sense in my head. So Steve is my sadness, okay, because there's a lot of grief going on with him. Uh, His pre-Super Serum self, the post-war life he should have had, and Peggy. Sam is fear because of his representation of the the clients at the the VA with all their PTSD, and his power is to fly away, which is what fear is to motivate you to do. Bucky is my anger because he's been abused and is righteously furious about that, and Natasha makes a really good fit for disgust. She's got a lot of self-disgust going on and also she's always obliged to stay in uncomfortable situations so she's perfected the art of being able to turn away from them without having to move. But I could never pinpoint joy. I couldn't find anybody to represent joy. And the closest reasonable surrogate I could get was Sharon Carter. And Emily Van Camp looks awesome in yellow, which certainly helped. Um, But she didn't have the... Joy has a raw power to it, and I couldn't find that. And I was—I picked through other women in the Marvel universe, and it just wasn't clicking. And then I heard that they were looking at Cap- Captain Marvel, and then I heard that they'd cast Brie Larson, and I started hoping that when I saw Carol Power upon screen in live action for the first time, it might let me feel that click of allowing joy to flow without trying to rein it in, without being scared that it would overwhelm people. And yes, it did. And I found my joy. And I was... Oh, it was amazing. 
<laughs> and I feel about five, but I don't care. It was amazing. <laughs> That's Pinar Toprak's fantastic score for Captain Marvel. And in case you folks are wondering, why do I feel like I've heard that one before? To me, Carol's theme evokes Minas Tirith in Return of the King. And you want to talk about the symbolic table flip of that. really struck me about um, one observation that I saw which was and again to be fair they were leveling this at the entirety of the MCU run that there were a few too many fights where it was just a pack of people wearing the same uniform and you know punch 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 to get them out of the way okay I will say this to those people who think that. Do you know what it's like to have the same argument with people over and over again? (laughs) To have to demonstrate your competence and your worth over and over again to the same people in the same way in the hope that somebody will take you seriously? Because women do know and it feels like that. They keep saying in the movie how she, you know, oh, she's she's letting her emotions get away from her. And usually... In a movie of this type, or of like a superhero movie or whatnot, people will say that when the person is, you know, the person has anger problems, or the person has control issues, and then, you know, you can kind of, you can kind of see what they're saying, but I'm like, Carol's pretty happy-go-lucky. You know, she's some stuff she's wondering about, but in general, she seems like she's pretty, she wants to succeed, she's focused on her career, all these things, and I'm like... What the hell are you talking about? Mm, but that she needs to control her emotions. Absolutely, but that's part of the theme of it for me. That the that she's always being told, you know, you, your emotions get the better of you, and then things go wrong, and and you you've got to repress all that and restrain it, and. That experience, and I am not even going to begin to say that this is every woman's experience by any means, but growing up in an environment where there is some overlap with you hanging out with with guys and you do get told if you want to be one of the boys, then you have to push all your emotions down into your ass the same way the rest of us do. And and be... Though you're not allowed to feel anger the way that boys do. Oh, no. Yes, you, you can't vent oh, because... No. So you're boys, fighting see, with one hand thing. behind you, your back. You're caught between a rock and a hard place because it's, it's repressed those emotions, but anger is unladylike. So on both That's... sides of the coin, you don't get any kind of acceptable outlet. 
Yeah, you're kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't. And that, I think, leads into why this is so important for a lot of people and why I think this movie is going to speak to a lot of women specifically, not just because there's a female lead, but because they specifically address the fact that the whole point of Carol's arc is for her to finally say, you know what? I'm not going to suppress my emotions anymore. This person is telling me that my emotions are getting the better of me and they're making me weak. No, actually, my emotions and my ability to express them makes me strong. This is where I am at my strongest, when I let my emotions out and I'm able to express myself to its fullest capacity and I'm not going to push them down anymore. I am actually going to use them. For me, that was a big takeaway, but I think it will be for a lot of people as well. And I don't know if you ladies uh, agree with this or not, but I certainly found a connecting point with this to, you know, real world women and not just in the in the film, not just in the superhero genre, but a lot of women I feel like might be able to relate to this where they have been told your emotions are getting the better of you. You're acting hysterical. You're acting crazy. Stop feeling this way. Screw all of that. You know what? This is what makes me strong and I don't think it's healthy or in service of anybody to suppress your emotions just to serve someone else's ego or someone else's feelings. That's what we always get told. And yes, when I say we, I mean women. We're, mm-hmm. we're you know, we're hysterical. Yeah, you get upset and it makes you not think straight. Mm. Not even yes, just upset. So also just anytime she's trying to have the slightest bit of fun, she's not serious enough and she's what we would consider positive emotions as well as negative ones that joking or loving or even caring about things enough to actually take action, being passionate in the slightest is not a good idea if you are a woman. Mm. And this is why the finding the joy was so important to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ooh, uh, all right. Come on, y'all. Ooh, uh, uh, yeah. Talk to me. Yeah. What a man, what a man, what a man, what a mighty good man. What a mighty, What a man, what a man, what a man, what a mighty good man. All right, we're still talking about this but I kind of wanted to move on to to something else that I thought was really important in this film that I I thought was great that it was in there and again another big check mark for me it, I think it's important to address toxic masculinity in some of our media because as we have seen even within the lead up to this film and all of the the now what we have called hate boys before they even saw the film clearly it is still alive and going strong i think it's really important to address toxic masculinity and to criticize it however i also think that we've reached a point where it's not enough to simply show it it's not enough to simply condemn the toxicity it's now equally important to show examples of positive masculinity There are not many, but there are examples in Captain Marvel, especially with this movie's version of Nick Fury. There are a lot of really great examples of him being positive, being supportive, being very nurturing. Even just the simple fact that he's kind to an animal 
even that speaks volumes for who he is as a person. The fact that he helps out with the housework, the fact that he lets Carol take the lead and is fine with providing a supporting role, and he doesn't let his ego get in the way when he sees that there's somebody else that's more capable of dealing with a problem. And it doesn't matter that she's a woman. Just this person has it has a better handle on it than I do and lets her kind of take charge with it. I think that is so important to have in in a lot of this kind of media that we're seeing now, especially in Marvel movies that have such a big range. Yes, please give us more examples of men acting in a more positive, more nurturing, more supportive way. Please. And on the other side of that equation, this movie is also, we've been talking so much about Carol, but one of the things I loved so much about this movie was that it's not just her. She's not the only woman who does things in the movie Mm. because... Uh, Maria is there, competent, and a different person than Carol, but they're both women who do things and are strong and resilient and clearly have been through a lot of stuff, and I was endlessly grateful to have that relationship. And also Marvell, which I wish there was a lot more Marvell in this movie, but the fact that she exists at all made me very happy. I love that Carol's response to the dude who says, you know, oh, you should really smile more, is, you know, I, I'm expecting the sort of tantrum-y response of, you know, like, Man of Steel, he, he you know, he pretzels the truck around, around a, <laughs> like, a sign or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And in here, I'm expecting, I don't know, her, her, him to come out and find his bike, you know, smashed up or something. Or, you know, she beats the shit of it, out of him. No, she just takes his motorcycle. And I was like, awesome! Oh my gosh! Rolls his eyes at him like, oh god, this, really? Okay, and then, well, I'm just gonna take your bike and ride off and do what I gotta do. Thanks. Yeah. Bye! (laughs) Talking about, you know, positive male representation in this movie, like, that part of the internet freaked out about the fact that there's a scene of Nick Fury helping with the dishes. Oh yeah, fuck those people. Uh, oh yeah. Oh yeah. And I'm like, oh, wow. Wow, guys. It's pretty much a given, gentlemen, that if the hate boys are really, really furious about the way a man acts on film, that's probably quite a good way to act. And I'm going to say this several times in this episode. If you've not heard our show on We Need to Talk About Fandom, Go listen to that as soon as you finish this. That is where we define hate boys, the obsessives. Not just people who don't like Captain Marvel, unhealthily obsessed boys. And they frequently get angry about the portrayal of male heroes in contemporary sci-fi as things progress. They're even more angry that women get to do anything at all. But they're angry when their avatars on screen behave in ways they wouldn't. Because they're never angry when he crosses the line. They're never angry when he commits hateful crimes. They're angry. Whoa. Sorry, I had to run off there. It started hailing down and I had to get the washing in. No word of lie. Just, I mean, if you want to prove my point, you know. Women appreciate men who help. 
And if you're gentle with animals, that means they'll feel like you're probably going to be gentle with them. It's not rocket science, guys! Women respond positively to men they feel safe around. So you know that fear of being friend-zoned? Please take the advice of a guy who was friends with his future wife for months before they got together. Being trusted is a good thing. Being friends with women is a good thing. Having more friends of any gender is a good thing. Desperately trying to conform to a masculine stereotype and decrying everything that doesn't fit into it, including your entertainment, becoming angrier every day, not a great way to live. You so crazy. I think I want to have your baby. Okay, so this has been described as feeling like a phase one movie. Now, we can dispute that it didn't for us all we like on a personal level, but the comparison has come up enough that it is worth exploring. Saying that it's like phase one is... It conjures up certain expectations and deliveries that we are now beyond by almost a decade. Now, this might be many people's new favourite Marvel, but it's scored lower with critics, and not only because it's a leading lady movie. At a current 79%, it stands above Thor The Dark World and Incredible Hulk at 67, Iron Man 2 at 73, Age of Ultron at 75, and Thor at 77, but below Captain America The First Avenger at 80, which is, I might add, a really great movie that gets better with age, and the more things that Steve Rogers goes on to do, the better that first movie gets. But... Let's just imagine we live in a world where, when movies like this come out, men don't scream indistinctly. Ignore, for just a moment, the hate boys. Focus on the perspectives of the like-with-reservations crowd. Which is where this lukewarm response seems to be coming from. Now, with our keen critical eyes, can we search out the shortcomings? At the beginning of this movie, I was a little bit worried. I'm going to fully admit that I was a kind of concerned that it was going a bit too heavy handed. Like this might be pushing the message a little bit too hard, a little bit too soon as the movie progressed. I think it dropped a lot of that. And I was definitely more on board as the movie progressed, but in the very beginning, especially in that very first scene where Carol is, uh, is having that first little sparring match with Jan Rog. I was like, Oh boy, I think they're getting kind of, they're going a little bit heavy with this with what they're setting up right away, but as I got to the end of the film, I kind of understood why they set it up in the way that they did and it didn't bother me as much. But I think if you were to put any kind of criticism as to the message, I think that is a fair criticism to say. It is a bit on the nose in those very beginning scenes in the very opening of the film. I think the opening f- of the film for me is a, is another one of those spots, but it's more to do with the visual elements. I found that the first maybe 10 minutes or so was a little bit dingy, a little bit dark. I wasn't quite sure what they were going for in terms of visual theming. And the fact that they set up a handful of characters there that you then don't get to explore much and don't get to see much of, particularly Minerva. Gemma Chan's amazing. Really would have liked a lot more Gemma Chan. 
some of the supporting cast does also end up feeling underutilized, particularly Gemma Chan as Minerva, though let's be honest about this, a movie called 120 Uninterrupted Minutes of Gemma Chan would probably still do well to have a bit more footage of Gemma Chan. You still want her to be alive, don't you? I, I do. I'm like, we didn't see a body. We didn't see a body. <laughs> Please bring her back. Please bring her back. Um, so in, I was for that first 10 minutes a little bit like, okay, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt, but can you give me something that I can mm. see a little bit better, please. A lot of that is tied in with the Cree themselves, as mm. in Carol has been raised for the past six years in this very stern society, and things are kind of dingy, dingy and a little bit Blade Runner-ish, mm. but without the trash. Yeah. And then when we move on to Earth, it takes on a completely different tone. Absolutely. And mm-hmm. also, I think that does and tie more, it in... it becomes more human as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that, that does tie in with the overall theme because here's the thing. If you are repressing your emotions, you can't numb yourself selectively. If you're mm. going to push down one, <laughs> you have to push them all It's down. like saying, it gets a bit dingy when Tony Stark's in that cavern. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, yes, absolutely. Yes, it does. Indeed. But, um, but yeah, the whole feeling of this is that environment and this mm. is that culture and this is that world. Whereas with Man of Steel, it's dingy throughout. It doesn't matter where you are. Uh, you see? There yeah. you go. Yeah. If I have one minor complaint that was worrying me at the very start of the movie as well was it was the slightest bit clunky with its exposition in the beginning. Mm. There was a couple moments where I was like, I really hope this isn't how they describe everything in the movie. Specifically, I was thinking when they're on the subway to visit the consciousness and they have a conversation that basically boils down to consciousness yeah you know these things about our culture that you've been living in for six years yep that's a total as you know yeah uh yeah that was but that stuff fades off really quickly once they get to earth it becomes much more of a like uncovering mystery story which is handled really well but the setup of some of the world building stuff is a little bit and I just think it was kind of unnecessary because I think, I think people would have understood anyways. I don't think you needed to say it out loud. But again, these, as you said, that they don't make it feel like a bad film. Mm. They just make it feel like an early Marvel where before they'd really worked out those kinks. I don't know because yeah, a lot it, of those early Marvels are like really good to begin with, and then they get kind of. <laughs> Check in your watch for the end bit as Captain America punches a lot of Hydra dudes. I was just going to say, Captain America, the the first Avenger, it does kind of waffle there towards the end. But mm. man, that first half is so good. Go. Yeah. And uh, there are, the original Iron Man's been criticized repeatedly for like uh, just a big robot punching contest, which doesn't really mean much. Now, even if you can read the subtext of... Like Tony is punching the embodiment of everything he now doesn't want to be, it doesn't make the fight that much more interesting. It's like, I'm punching subtext! (laughs) (laughs) And also, you say that it it suddenly gets a lot better at world building when they get to Earth in in the mid-1990s. I think an element, a huge element of that is that we all know what Earth in the mid-90s was like. We are intimately familiar well, with that. Yeah, there's less to do. Well, no, that's, that's my point, though. I think some of the people who are kind of critiquing the world building a little bit, my first thought is often, how old were you in 1995? How familiar were you with that Kev, particular we are, setup? We're getting were, close were to the authority fallacy. Uh, you are not authorised to judge this because you weren't around in the 90s. <laughs> no slight on Mackenzie, who I know is the youngest of us here, yeah. by the way. <laughs> I existed in the world of this movie by two days. Okay. <laughs> 
Divine Inferno. Well, for the rest of us who are old, the visual shorthand, <laughs> the visual shorthand of her plunking down in the middle of a blockbuster video is hilarious. Mm. Absolutely. Can I just yes. say, and the flannel that shirt. That was made especially good in my screening because she dropped down in the blockbuster and it's like scrolled up to the sign and a six-year-old to ten-year-old girl said, what's a blockbuster? Oh, oh how sweet. Thank you. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm sad now. child. <laughs> oh, God. I, the I spirit of blockbuster is listening going, have I been gone so long? <laughs> I did feel like they kind of overstuffed the movie and that I, I felt like I did not get as much time as I think they should have put in there hmm. with Carol dealing with the fact that, you know, she was brainwashed for six years yeah. and kidnapped. Essentially, she was kidnapped and brainwashed and, like, massively violated. And she gets one scene. And, and this is not a knock against Brie Larson, because Brie Larson acted amazingly, and I loved seeing that, you know, she, you know, I completely believed her reaction. I completely believed that, you know, she's traumatized by this. But I really wanted, you know, give us a couple of minutes, give us a montage, something to show the, like the range of emotions that this takes her through. Because the way the ma- movie made it fail- feel to me was that, you know, she had one scene of being upset and then she was fine. Mm. Mm. I think they conveyed emotion to us through us seeing her memories through her eyes in this blur. And it's like, well, that should be enough, right? And it's like, no, how does she feel about it? Maybe them? not. Yeah, I but agree. I, I, I do been, wonder if they out a little bit more. Yeah, yeah I do wonder if yeah. they're pinning that for later, though, because that whole... That whole theme for me felt like it might be a reference to one of Carol's main storylines in the hmm. comics. Uh, do you want to go into this one? Because it's quite something. <laughs> I can I can abbreviate. <laughs> it's it's lengthy. But one of the when when Carol was first being developed as a character, one of the main storylines she had was that she was an Avenger, or she was at least on the periphery of the Avengers team. This is when she was Ms. Marvel, and she'd been given some of Captain Marvel's powers. Absolutely. And she... Did she disappear? Let's just say she disappeared. Yeah, and then turns back up again with no memory of where she's been or what's happened, but she's mysteriously pregnant. And she... Event the baby grows really quickly, and she eventually remembers that what happened was she was kidnapped and brainwashed and impregnated by a big bad guy villain, um, a celestial being of some kind. Absolutely, who specifically impregnated her with himself. Yeah, she's so he could be wife to you and mother to me. Yes, on a mountain of skulls in the castle of pain, I sat on a throne of blood. The idea is that she's going to give birth to the physical vessel that he then gets to come through and be in. And it's all very sort of, you know, Earth goddess and and reincarnating god. And it's the oldest time and it's, you know, not a new Taylor's oldest time. That's so fucking creepy. Very specifically, (laughs) in the comics, the reaction that her team had to this was, oh, you've been off and had a relationship with somebody. The Avengers thought it was nifty. Yeah. (laughs) 
or at least it was not the 80s, something that so. was really worth reacting to. And it wasn't until uh, Chris, Chris Claremont Clement. came back in and did a, a later story where she retrospectively addresses the fact that she was kidnapped and raped and they didn't seem that bothered about it at all. I believe her uh, exact quote was... What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go live with the X-Men. Indeed. And the, there's, there is then a far more in-depth discussion about how this has stayed with her and what that's left her with. Now... Obviously, that's not a storyline that they can put in the MCU, but mm. it did feel to me a little bit like the fact that she is taken by the Kree and she is infused with their blood and made a part of their empire with precisely zero choice Used in it. as a weapon to kill yeah. people that she had no actual beef with herself. Absolutely. Told to hate them. That that might be a way of paralleling that storyline without having to make it too difficult to explain to children. Yeah. Kind of like they did the demon in the bottle in Iron Man 2. Yeah, exactly. And if that turns out to be the case, then that genuinely might be something that they come back to in a later film. And I I hope that that's the case, because I hope there are going to be several more Captain Marvel movies and more emotional exploration is definitely what I would want to see in them. Show us more of her with Marvel, honestly. That's my big one, too. More (laughs) Marvel and Carol's relationship, since it was clearly very important. I've just thought. Yeah, I uh, definitely wanted to see more of her and Maria uh, interacting with each other. That too. Maria's going to be in her 60s. <sighs> it's going to be Peggy and Steve. Yeah. Yeah, a, a less Peg- violent uh, difference in age, but yeah. I'm sure she'll make a crack about the fact that it's a lot longer than six years this time. <laughs> yeah. On the bright I- side. Uh, that means Monica will be grown up and fully capable of becoming her own superhero, which mm-hmm. I fully expect and want them to do. Mm-hmm. There you go. I, I reckon yeah. they will. They, they didn't just like plant her there and make little girls yeah. think, well, that girl's cool. She's like me. And not go, oh, let's follow up on that. Yeah. I'm only happy when it rains. Okay, so that was the shortcomings. Now, how does it go higher, further, faster than a phase one? I mean, aesthetically is something that I'm going to bring up. This movie is really pretty some of the time. Like, sure, you can say the opening scenes are a little bit on the dingy sides, but the returning motif of the very slow motion explosion was... I don't think they would have done a lot of the stylistic and aesthetic things Mm. like this in, in... phase one phase one was very linear and very straightforward for the most part and this was a lot of intercutting a lot of like not a lot lot of of flashbacks but a lot of yeah memory returns a lot of it's not as straightforward and that doesn't make it confusing that just makes it rich in a way that 
the phase one films often aren't. I think for me, part of the difference is the fact that the origin movies that we've seen in the MCU so far are heroes' journeys, and this is a heroine's journey, like you said, Debbie. And the 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 significant shift in the beginning of that story is that a hero's journey is something grabs you and yanks you out of your comfortable world. In the heroine's journey, you are trapped in that comfortable world and trying to bust your way out of it. Something doesn't feel right for Carol. She is trying to uh, get to the bottom of what isn't clicking for her. Mm. I mean, the, one of the superficial ones for for me, the the rearrangement of the origin setup, rather than going, this is Carol Danvers on Earth, and then this happened to her. So, like by the end of uh, Act One, she's been kidnapped by the Kree, and then they take her out to this home world, and then she gets out. Like they could have played it like Iron Man, mm. like established the higher, further, faster, baby. Like she's the Top Gun pilot in yeah. 1989 and at the beginning, but they this don't. This happened, and this is how she got her powers. Yeah. And- it's non-linear. Mm. It's a it's a mystery. I don't think there's many others that are mysteries, really. There's there's mystery there's elements, elements in Doctor Strange and in Thor because they don't know what's going on with the ice giants. It was Loki, obviously, <laughs> with the shifty okay. eyes. Ostensibly to the Asgardians, it's like, a mystery. It, that's we know solved what's going in on. one <laughs> sentence where Loki goes, "I let the ice giants in," and there's like, "Well, that was that then." Also, Thor isn't spending most of the movie trying to figure that out. Yeah, He's no. too busy table flipping, not wearing a shirt. <laughs> Carol doesn't do things for the sake of someone else. Towards the end of the film, she decides, I'm not going to push my emotions down to salvage anybody else's feelings. And it (laughs) actually reminded me a lot of uh, the character Morrigan when she appears in the game Dragon Age Inquisition. She basically, she's a mage and she's very out with it. She says like, no, I don't need, she outright says they would put me on a leash so that they can feel safer at night i'm uninterested in their comfort why do i need somebody else to tell me how to control my own power and reading the article kind of made me think about that scene from dragon age inquisition they do a very similar thing in this film as well where at the end of the day carol decides you know who are you to say how to control my power this is mine I know what to do with it. I'm capable. I'm competent. And if it doesn't fall in line with your feelings, with your ego, with your establishment, that's okay. I don't care if it doesn't. I'm going to do it anyway because I have my own agency. And her intent is not to stamp on Jan Rog or a stamp on other people. She's not... She has reasons for wanting to defeat the Kree, et cetera, et cetera, but it's not, she's not just about, it's not just about revenge. It's, it's about much bigger stuff than that. It's not mm-hmm. an unfocused lashing out. Yeah. Her thing here is, you know, she wants to make, right some injustice, essentially. Yeah. In the end, her final fight isn't only about proving herself, it's also about actually getting the right thing done. Whereas a lot of well, not all of them, but some of the Phase 1 movies do that, especially Iron Man, where it's 
yeah, sure, he's stopping someone from doing a bad thing with robots, but it's mostly <laughs> because he feels bad and it's his fault and he wants to make himself feel better about it. Ooh, you're not wrong. That's most of Tony, though. Yeah. I mean... Yeah. He's, yeah, he's set up as a self-centered character. Carol is... It feels much more inclusive. To your earlier point about this going against the system in a way that a lot of Phase 1 films didn't, I suppose the first major turnaround that happened was in Phase 2 with uh, Winter Soldier and Phase 3 films to a much larger degree with Ragnarok and Black Panther seem to be very much about, no, no, shake up the system. This needs to be re-evaluated. Which when everyone's always, always going, oh, Disney, they're just playing it safe. Really? This, this film here is an attack on imperialism. This film here is a, an attack on isolationism. It's and xenophobia uh, and yeah, a lot and of critique, things yeah. that we're dealing with right now, things that we've been dealing with for, for a long time, but especially in the era of the, the so-called frogmen and the pepes and everything else. Yeah. These yeah. are, you know, they're described by uh, um, uh, film aficionados as bland, but the, the subject matter, not always, but occasionally, gets really hard-hitting. Mm. And especially yeah. when they're giving that to a massive audience and saying, there you go, deal with that if you want to. If not, here's some robot fights. And if you look at that in comparison with, if you, if you follow Steve's line particularly, if you look at the fact that his first film, because that is all about him trying to prove himself, yeah. but he's trying to prove himself within an existing system. He's trying to prove to the army that he can be good enough for them. Steve poor boy does not get a moment where he gets to turn around and go, I don't have to prove anything to you. No. That doesn't really come until Civil War. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Also, uh, uh, this is a huge, huge deal. There's no direct daddy issues. We see her father very briefly in flashback. They don't even really have a conversation. But every single male prominent hero in Marvel has got daddy issues. Every single one of them. Even the, the the hallowed Steve is living in the shadow of his father who died a hero. They all want to appease their dads or they're angry at their dads. And Carol is dealing with a male boss, but she's not... Like, I don't think she ever even really mentions him by name. She's not dwelling on it. She's not like, oh, God, that Yon Rog. Oh, he thinks this about me. Ah, oh. she's like, and at the end, she's really sure of herself when she takes him on. Mm. There's, there's no daddy issues there. And that is really significant that she's the first female hero to, to do that. The fact, again, this feeds into Oh, and her... Ant-Man has daddy issues, but he's the daddy. Yes. He's a bad daddy. <laughs> yes, this is true. But the fact that her take on the supreme intelligence is a woman that she worked with yeah. uh, and looked up to is is a part of that as well that she doesn't have that that line of i have to overcome this you know the the edipal thing i mean in part it could be argued that that's by virtue of the fact that she's she's a girl she doesn't she's not expected by society to replicate that parent but it happens a lot anyway wonder woman had it tomb raider has it in tomb raider at the moment cannot have a film where she's not thinking about daddy yeah and yeah exactly as maya said gamora definitely has it uh scarlet witch even has a little bit of it uh if you consider 
the horrid Quicksilver's entire backstory was like sad orphan yeah. things, and then Ultron's kind of robot daddy. Yeah. Uh, Natasha doesn't seem to uh, have daddy issues, but she's very much kind of yep. I served. <laughs> The Romanov daddy. Uh, yeah, if you, know. you if you consider that Natasha is effectively brought up by the Russian state, her yeah. issue is with the patriarchal Russian state. Bingo, so yeah. there's and and I mean you know there are little threads of that with Carol's story. She's a part of the patriarchal yeah. air force, and she actually yeah. goes off to take on an empire which is very male oriented. Even though there's a lot of female representation in there, they don't have all of those qualities of peacekeeping that historically register as feminine. Mm. Instead, it's, it's like Ronan the Accuser is their poster child, this heavy-handed carpet bomber. Mm. Yes, I was surprised walking out of this movie about how anti-imperialist it was. It, I mean, it's a lot less... After Ragnarok, uh, you were surprised? No, <laughs> not necessarily in that way but i knew that they got the military contract back with this and me and my fiance were discussing how obviously the people who do the military contracts don't look for subtext because the kree empire is i mean it's not a direct parallel to the american military but man they sure don't treat refugees very well do they yeah it uh, <laughs> it serves as a uh, uh, a analogous but not necessarily literal uh, yeah. Parallel. Yeah. It's, it's like if you're if you're registering these bad traits of this particular tyrannical empire, you might be an intergalactic tyrant. Not, <laughs> hashtag not all empires. Yeah. I wonder if there's a little bit of an element there of okay, if you're observing this and you're feeling like we're saying something here about the particular government that you happen to be a party to, well. You said that, not me. Maybe take a look at it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's also no romance subplot. And Sharon's holding both arms along. Yay! Thank I went you. back Thank through... God for that. I went back through all the MCU films, and I got it narrowed down to the Ant-Man films, specifically because, as of Ant-Man and the Wasp, Hope seems to have no real interest in Scott in that way. Like, they are partners there was a, a a glimmer of all oh, these two, two might get together in the um the first ant-man film but by the second one there's no spark of and like they, they never kiss or or arrange a date or talk about each other they're very much colleagues mm, yeah. and that's the only one because every other one has either a pre-existing romantic relationship that is trying to be husbanded or one that they're trying to sort of get off the ground I will say there is actually one other, and that's Steve and Natasha. They are colleagues. But Steve goes to see Peggy at the beginning of uh, Winter Soldier. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Sorry. I didn't mean there's no romantic subplot in the film, but that's I'm not saying there are no just colleagues. I'm saying every single individual film has a romance in it. This doesn't have even one romance in it. And that's significant because... It's a female-led movie, yeah. and that yeah. mentality of it's a girl, there's got to be a relationship, or girls won't be interested. Yeah. And they could easily have had a Channing Tatum from... Uh, um, uh, well, technically they did. Channing Tatum from Jupiter Ascending, the guide who helps her, is Nick Fury, mm. and there's never any kind of spark between them. They never sort of imply, hey, these two. Mm. Even though they do make... like He makes a great helper, 
He does. But uh, it, it never felt like they should have nudged no. it in that Possibly direction. because he refers to her as looking like someone's disaffected niece. Yeah, we, yeah. we know that Samuel L. Jackson's 70. Yeah. But he really pulled off the feeling like a younger man. Oh, yes, yes. Like he, oh, fantastic. And yeah. the chemistry those two have, I never would have guessed. Oh, yeah. And that's, yeah. that's the thing. It's not that there are no relationships in this. I mean, we touched on it briefly, her relationship with Maria. Oh, it's fantastic. The, the way they interact with each other, but it doesn't... You, you can have deep involvement, deep loyalty, personal interest in what's been happening with somebody without there being an element of, can we shag? Yeah, immediately. It's like... No, oh well, don't let girls take over Marvel. They'll, they'll all be kissing books. Um, no kissing no, in no, this one, no, not at not all. Not so much. No, probably, probably could have done with a bit more kissing. No, I, just, I, I, <laughs> I think I boys like kissing movies. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would question a little bit. Um, what about Thor Ragnarok? There's no real romance subplot in that. Isn't that? Valkyrie definitely seems to take more of a shine to Thor by the end. Like, there's a bit where they both okay. jump up and no stand in front of each other on the orgy ship and go, Ugh. and it's like, well, you, you. But at the same time, Valkyrie's most definitely, at the very least, very gay. So, mm. yeah. Plus, everyone's favorite ship on Twitter at the moment seems to be Thor setting up Valkyrie with Carol. Totally down for that. And I think also there is the element of the Grandmaster who is trying to shag the entire universe. Yeah. Yeah. There's also a quick reference uh, to the Hulk and Natasha's. Bingo. Ah, yes. And also uh, Jane, uh, you know, didn't dump her. She dumped me. It was a mutual dumping. Um, I do yeah, want to yeah, say. Yeah, okay, fair. Okay, fair. <laughs> Yeah. I think I, I, I probably uh, glanced past uh, Thor Ragnarok because it is such a bisexual jamboree. Like, <laughs> everyone in it is gorgeous as fuck and could go either way. Which is why I'm so excited. in love with everybody. <laughs> About Captain Marvel, the relationships in this, though, it doesn't have an explicit romance, but there are a lot of people getting a lot of joy out of the reading of Captain Marvel and Maria's relationship where mm-hmm. they are living together and co-parenting a child mm. as something yeah. other than purely platonic and it doesn't go either way in the film but I don't think that that's a unfair reading of that situation yeah. and it's there I appreciate want. that they never go out of their way to deny that mm. I watched for that and there's not a single thing where they go out of their way to say no no they're definitely not a thing yeah I think that came through most prominently for me and again, a lot of it, I was putting it down to, oh, you know, this may well just be my interpretation. I don't think they, they are putting this in there on purpose. But uh, at the end, when she leaves, there is very much that feeling of, I love you very much, but you have more important things to do right now than me. Yeah. Healthy relationships with Ben Mendelssohn's character of Talos with his family. That's a really nice expression of love and togetherness that isn't explicitly romantic you would imagine that of course there would be some kind of a romance going on between him and his wife Mm. but it really is about them being reunited like that's where the emotional thrust of that relationship really is in them being reunited and together and as a as a family and as a community of their people yeah That leads us on to Ben Mendelsohn's Talos, who is a whole conversation in himself. Uh, This film, unlike all the phase ones, does not have a great big grey villain who is a a shadow of the hero to uh, uh, fight that is a protracted section of the uh, third act because effectively that's Yon Rog for Carol and she just, nope, not going to fight you, no point. 
And uh, instead, what they do with the switcheroo with Talos is kind of masterful if you consider what and who Ben Mendelsohn has played just in the past few years. He's played Krennic in Rogue One and pretty much the exact same character in uh, Ready Player One and in the Robin Hood film, which is awful. And he was actually the best thing in it, but that's not saying much. I forgot about that. Yeah. And so when he turned up, I just started nudging Sharon and going, if he's not the villain, and I thought, no, it's so bloody obvious that it's him. There's got to be more than that going on here. And then when I found out which direction they were going to pull it in, not only is that a really neat like character moment for a Ben Mendelsohn to go, oh, yeah, so we've got in the guy who's kind of the Alan Rickman of, uh, of uh, sci-fi now that uh, Alan Rickman's gone, the guy who comes on to be your villain. And he is... Uh, he starts off nefarious and inscrutable and then becomes funny and dry in a kind of I'm not sure whether I trust you way and then kind of ends up like this really earnest decent man which is such a great turnabout I honestly can't think of many Marvel films where they've actually done that where the villain ends up as someone who's not only just not terrible like Ghost and isn't just an amusing drunkard fool like the Mandarin but powers the soul of the movie which is just give my people a chance hmm. in they've terms been playing of... around with that for years with loki but they've never really fully committed to Ooh. saying whether he yeah. is on the side of the goodies or the baddies loki clark greg's uh, uh wonderful to see him back here but he absolutely got nailed loki with where is my disadvantage you lack conviction mm-hmm. yeah yeah but Talos has that commitment. He he uh, is dedicated to a, a very simple, very noble cause. And, and for it to, to... It's so significant because for decades since Jack Kirby created the Skrulls and Fox have owned the rights to them for ages because they were part of the Fantastic Four. And uh, if the Chitauri at the beginning in Avengers are technically the ultimate version of the Skrulls from Mark Millar's horrible Ultimates books... The scrolls have always been these scary, othery, kind of like Cold War parallels of Russian agents. And the more recent, the sort of 2000s things have all been about infiltration and, oh, you didn't realise this, but this character that you really cared about is in fact a scroll. And I think it was like Spider-Woman or something like that had been basically in the comic books for years and years and turned out to be like the scroll queen. And it was a way of pulling the rug out from under your feet. But they did the opposite of that in this they said these characters that especially comic fans are prejudiced to despise and mistrust so that we're kind of in carol's boat here are actually just decent people trying not to be murdered and that for that to be the message now is so important so people going oh it just didn't have an impact are you fucking kidding me yeah, even the fact that the squirrels are shapeshifters and they get treated in a certain way, like, that is a huge thing. They are specifically a type of character, a type of alien that can change its shape, literally change its shape and its form and its appearance to, oh, God, I'm, I'm starting to think of the Great Replacement now, and it's going to go off on a huge thing that I don't yeah. even want to get into. But <laughs> the fact that they can, like infiltrate a society by blending in and by uh, inserting themselves into a certain 
place or a certain society or you know like that has significance in and of itself and in the way that they might be treated by certain people like the Cree or like people on earth for instance but then they do this wonderful turnaround where they're just trying to find a place to be and just trying to find a place to be themselves it's such a uh, I, lo- I really love what they did with the scrolls. Like, Talos is a great character also in the fact that there's not only for the fact that he's a character that shows a, re- a little bit of a redemption arc, like this is somebody who started out one way and now has done a full 180 and has shown to, to be a redeeming character at the end. Like, he's great, but also the scrolls are a great race to kind of express that that sentiment that uh you know to drive home that point Mm. there's something that uh, alex picked up on when we were uh, coming out of the film about the the scene where monica is talking to talos's child and they're talking about the whole shape-shifting thing and she says to her don't change your eyes your eyes are beautiful they they are you you shouldn't have to change them and that being an element of self-expression that they should feel proud of and, and able to retain. The fact that it was an African-American girl who told her that. Mm. And yeah. There is the pressure on African-Americans to change their standards of beauty to fit with white standards of beauty. So to be mm-hmm. able to pass that on, no, don't change. That just made me feel very yeah. warm inside. Yes. It, Anything which can make a maligned minority within society that's been hated for a long, long time and mistrusted seem the most human aspect of a film is such a precious element right now to be giving to people as a gift. And that is, something yeah, I really, really particularly important. needed to see yeah. mm-hmm. this last week, given yeah. the world. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> um. Another thing that uh, this has that none of the uh, uh, Phase 1 or Phase 2 or Phase 3 films really have, apart from a little bit in two of them. An absolutely key dramatic scene between two women. It's not just the Bechdel testers, are these women talking about something that isn't a guy? The scene where she talks to Maria Rambo is one of my favourite dramatic scenes in the MCU. Just it, They just let it play. They let it play like a drama. They sit down at the kitchen table and talk to each other. Like, Nick Fury even knows it's coming. He's like, oh, I'm needed in the basement, and then just leaves. And then they just have a quiet conversation. Like, that is the equivalent of the action centerpiece for the movie, for me, because that's where it's at. It's Carol going, I knew you, and I'm so sorry. I'm beginning to realise this is really hurting you. And... It's wonderful. The, the the performances there are very measured and very human. And like I said, the like, can anyone tell me uh, the other like t- I've got two, but if you can tell me more than that, please, of where two women talk to each other in a Marvel movie that is anywhere approaching this level of about something and isn't about a dude. <sighs> I got nothing. <laughs> I think Gar- Guardians 2 might be the Bingo. one that comes closest. Yeah. Nebula and Gamora. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're my sister, I... and I'm sorry. 
a little I mean it's not about something per se but the the scene is between like Shuri and uh Nikia it it seems to shorthand the fact that they are very good friends mm. There's a splendid scene with Nakia and um, Akoya where she says, so you're just going to, you are now going to serve this king, Killmonger. And she's like, I serve Wakanda. And the, 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 I have a stance on this. And it's not really about a dude. This is about me. Mm. That, I love that in Black Panther. And just more of that, please, in Marvel. Yeah. Uh, like we're we're moving in this direction, it's getting better. But um, but yeah, they, they, they just aren't enough of those in the first twenty or so movies. And this one definitely has one that, first of all, it's it's a longer scene. We spend more time with them together in this scene, and it's got a lot of emotional weight to it. bunch of people talking about how the fight scenes in this are not particularly fantastic for me they were well framed and gleeful that's a really important thing i think sharon said the fights aren't exactly angry and there's a bit where at the beginning after carol breaks out a scroll roars at her and she roars back they don't let girls do that in movies when I had to get the cover drawn for The Princess Thieves, I was looking for a reference picture in comics or animation of a boisterous action girl smiling and looking joyful. And they always look stern or sexy. They're never allowed to grin from ear to ear. It frightens men. What's wrong with this woman? So yeah, when Carol roared back at him, I kind of cheered. It was also fantastic to see Maria flying around the canyons, like just doing the... Independence Day dogfighting. Like, oh, you did not shoot that green shit at me. That scene. I think people might have taken for granted quite how much 90s clutter was positioned around the space station just so that the Just a Girl fight would allow Carol to, say, smack someone with a pinball table or for a Nerf gun to get employed. It reminded me of an Edgar Wright fight scene, only, you know, allowing the women prominence. But, you know, I think you ought to get him some help. He seems to be really hung up on superhero sex organs. But he'll outgrow it. It was also lovely to see the Stan Lee cameo. And while having Mallrats referenced in this does kind of destroy the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe as it folds in on itself. Because in that Kevin Smith movie, Stan Lee plays himself, talking about all the Marvel characters he created with Jason Lee. But this guy we already know jumps in and out of dimensions, so maybe he pinched it from Stan Lee's desk in our world and it was lovely seeing his tribute at the beginning during the Marvel logo and I think a worthy follow-up to that for Spider-Man Far From Home would be a Steve Ditko tribute because he never gets any audience appreciation and when the Fantastic Four finally make their MCU debut I think it's high time we had a logo that was a tribute to Jack Kirby. (laughs) 
So let's do our favorite bits in the movie. I think we've done most of them already, but I'm just gonna, let's just break this last piñata open. The scene where Carol takes on Yonrog at the end, and it starts out like two gunslingers about to unleash a storm of powers, and then it becomes a challenge from him to a fist fight, and then she blasts him mid-sentence and says, anybody? I have nothing to prove. I have nothing to prove. I have nothing to prove. I have nothing to prove to you. I actually saw a dude reviewer pass this off as an amusing Indiana Jones Cairo swordsman gag, but it could actually have been meaningful. He began to rewrite the movie and I switched off in disgust. This is one of the dudes who always says, now this movie isn't perfect. I think he said, Into the Spider-Verse. Now the movie isn't perfect. No movie is perfect! That's a hedge term! It's a preamble to upcoming deconstruction of weakness. Exploration of weakness is a vital part of film analysis. But saying it's not perfect makes people imagine this is a world where there are perfect movies. And considering that every perfect movie has at least one person trying to piss on it from a great height, I think we can do without that phrase from now on. As I've said, Mad Max Fury Road is a perfect movie for me. I'm much more interested in reviews that strike a balance between personal response and comparing and contrasting elements of that response within the broader cultural context. In other words, no movie is released in a vacuum and speaking on behalf of the general population is shaky ground. But the ability to glean some insight and convey why a piece of work did or did not push your buttons, whilst being aware of that broader picture, can make for some truly great film talk. This is why I like to study learned film commentators who themselves are well-read to a wide range of other film commentators. Otherwise, the whole thing becomes a series of airtight camera cubicles with YouTube boys parping out their isolated yet somehow homogenized opinions without cracking open the window of outside influence until we're just looking at 10,000 white male Dutch ovens and asking them what they thought of Black Panther. And that leads to an even greater problem of too many bad teachers teaching too many open-minded students to close off those minds and see the world only in one particular way. Namely, that if a film bothers you, a bullet-pointed list of plot holes and the rejection of its political agenda suffices as being able to read films. It doesn't, and this is why I opened up this school. Now, I know that, statistically speaking, some of you didn't like Captain Marvel much, and some of you thought it was just okay. And I also know that you listen to our show because you want to know more. That's why Sharon and I showcased the voices of women on this episode. Not to tell you off for not liking it, but to give you some authentic insight as to why it definitely had impact for others. So, in the case of this scene with I Have Nothing to Prove to You... There was, of course, quite a lot going on. Ladies? It's the whole thematic point of the story. <laughs> yes! Yep. Yes, yes, exactly. It is. <laughs> yes. And Here is the hoop. Let me set the hoop on fire. Jump through the hoop to be able to just go, nah, and walk away. Yes! Yeah, again, but- not having to... Not having to pander to somebody else's emotions and specifically not having to cater to a man's feelings or how a man wants you to do things. I, I mean, I, I can't like, you know, we could we could talk for hours about how many times some authority figure, usually uh, usually a man in our cases, has said, no, you can't do that. I mean, it's just a lot of guys don't. It's it's the same thing where, like, I had a I was watching uh, BoJack Horseman with a friend of mine once, and it was a scene where Diane is, like, in an airport, and a guy turns to her, just a complete stranger, and goes, hey, you should try smiling more or something like that. And he said to – and my friend said to me, 
I've never heard anybody say that. And I'm like, well, well, of course you haven't because you're a guy. Like, you have a completely different experience. Don't discount, like, I've heard that plenty of times. And if you've been out with a woman, you probably haven't heard it because guys never say that to a woman who is with another person. They say it to her when she's alone and when they basically got her trapped. So don't discount an entire like generations, an entire segment of society's uh, experiences just because you have never seen it firsthand. You may not have ever seen rampant racism firsthand, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. This is an extremely important message to get across to women, to girls across a lot of different uh, customs and ethnicities and ages and what have you. There is no reason for you to suppress your emotions to salvage the feelings of somebody else. And there's no winning in this system anyways. If she was trying endlessly to prove herself, they're not ever going to actually think she fits the qualifications anyways. And the the idea of endlessly trying to prove yourself for a system that is inherently broken and doesn't actually want you to succeed anyways is yep, it's always going to be mm-hmm. always going to be moving the goalposts on you the ceiling Absolutely. is always going to get raised on you Absolutely. And, so, and one element of that film uh, of that scene that I thought the line was going to be and I still think it kind of underpins it a little bit is part of his challenge to her is fight me as yourself fight me as you and when she I, I knew that the fist power was coming but I thought the kiss off was going to be this is me and that would have been just as good and especially because you know when he's saying I want you I just I just want you to be the best version of yourself like how many times have we heard that as well I just want yeah. you to be the best yeah the best version of myself for you mm-hmm. it's a completely exactly. self-centered a sentiment to have especially you know it's even more insidious when it's about somebody that you propose to care about somebody that you say is important to you Jan Rog in that scene what Jude Law is doing in that scene is something most almost every woman probably not every single one but most women 98% of women go through on a daily basis we get other women too, but mainly men coming at us constantly demanding our credentials, demanding why do we have a right to speak, demanding, well, what do you know about that? Well, are you a real gamer? Well, yeah. tell me the, you know, give me an exhaustive list of the lore of this thing. Mm. Yeah, are you a real fan? Yeah, are you a real fan? Well, you don't really know about that. You couldn't possibly have really read comics, played D&D, played video games, you know, read books, <laughs> Oh, it's whatever. impossible that a woman could, like, open a small, thin, light book and read the contents. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, again, though, we've, we've already talked about that whole goal. They're post. women! It's what they do! It's all they do is read! <laughs> Sorry, you the, assholes. The, what we've already said about the whole moving of the goalposts thing, I the, the whole gatekeeping around nerdery is something that I feel quite acutely because I was 
so into nerdy stuff when I was in my very early teens and I couldn't find anybody to connect with over it. And then I got to secondary school and there were these guys in my class who were really, really into comics. And I I got a moment when we actually were all sat on the same table and a conversation had sprung up and I started just enthusing about X-Men and the New Mutants. And I swear, the reaction was, oh, that's Marvel, that's not real comics, we're into DC. Or yeah, I, I don't remember what the exact words were, yeah, but, but that we was are the tone into DC. of it. And uh, honestly, I, I will confess, I am disproportionately down on DC for that reason, probably. <laughs> but it just, they were not representing. But yeah, no, you're absolutely right. For every prove yourself to me, it will always be. That's not enough. That's By the way, not that's not the, me saying no true fan. That's me saying no, they were no, no, shit fans. Indeed, but yep. they, but that that yep. whole you know what whatever like I said whatever hoop you jump through it won't be the right hoop because they yeah. don't want you to succeed. No, no, they don't so, want to be able to sit there and have a conversation with you about the relative merits of Marvel versus DC. They don't want that either. Oh, so you did jump through that flaming hoop. Well, now you're going to have to jump through this smaller flaming hoop, and there are sharks but with the, lasers the, attached the to their heads. The best head. part, the best part, is that having done all of that. They then have the nerve to turn around and say, girls won't talk to us. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Stop giving me flashbacks to high school. I, I don't like it. Me neither. <laughs> and breathe. I have a feeling we're going to be saying that for the rest of our lives. Mm. And there's this other side to it, too, where it's also the entitlement that when women are clearly interested in something and they can no longer deny it that they care and are invested they want it to push them away they mm. want the in- actual material to be designed in a way that is unpleasant for women to experience <laughs> or at the very least not have anything a woman would ever want even if it's something that they like just fine in other content before the women's got their hands on it <laughs> Set fire to the tasty stuff. No one else must eat it. Bob Chipman. We on everything. You don't piss on hospitality. Sorry. (laughs) Bob Chipman said on uh, Twitter just now, do you think Disney likes this? Do you think like this whole old the SJW agenda, the the most stupid thing I've heard of this is the whole Disney are pretending this is doing well financially. Actually, Disney are buying their own tickets. Oh, good idea. Then they could do a (laughs) sequel with projected ticket sales that they then have to pay more on because no one actually likes it it's all just a pretend business what studio creates a bucket to throw money into <laughs> i was speaking literally last brothers. Night with with a person yeah. who does scheduling for a theater and how their entire life is built around planning things around when disney comes out yeah so no yeah they're not yeah. making this up like no all theaters have to deal with the fact that for three weeks straight, it's just going to be whatever Disney put out. <laughs> but, I mean, okay, so Bob's point was, Disney liked it a while ago, where, and he's, his specific quote was, do you think they, they like it that they have to cast a nobody as Aladdin when they could just spray tan Zac Efron? Ten years ago, now they can't, because of the SJW agenda. Disney aren't happier that things are progressive. They're going the progressive way, because it's like, you know what? It feels like if we survive, it'll be like this, mm, yeah. as opposed to, fuck it, go back in time. Do you know what the uh, the canary in the mine for this is, by the way? Yeah. WWE. Yeah. If WWE are doing... Pro- and I'm not going to say here that they are 
wildly progressive, but they have started. They've moved to beyond the pink divas belt to now the W red exactly. Wonder Woman looking and women's championship. They belt. don't do jack unless it makes money. Yeah, Foxy Boxing wasn't making them as much as it used to. <laughs> Well, and this is this is pure like this is the free market acting like you guys, those same guys won't shut up about the importance of capitalism and all of that shit. This is the free market speaking. Mm-hmm. This is people, you know, the people choosing where to spend their money and they're spending it on Marvel in droves. And you know what the final stage of this is, by the way, after the whole, well, you can't talk about that. Okay, well, if you're going to talk about that, well, then we want the media to take away everything that you could possibly like about it. And then when they won't do that, the final stage is, well, it's not cool anymore. Ghostbusters suddenly is now shit, apparently, including the originals. Star Wars is dead. Marvel are done. They're just like, if you you like it, then we don't want to have it anymore. Ah, excuse me, neighbor. Uh, Yeah, I I couldn't help but notice you you picked pretty much all of my flowers. Can't make a float without flowers. (laughs) Oh, true enough. But uh, did you have to salt the earth so nothing would ever grow again? (laughs) <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Women will like what I tell them to like. Ugh. I spent my entire life being on the edge of being this huge nerd for so many things and not being able to completely connect. And I remember the moment I walked out of The Force Awakens and like every single thing about Star Wars instantly clicked in my head and I got it because Ray was there and I connected with her on a level I could never connect with any other character. Yay! And Same for Lyra. You know what? And, and, yeah. And for us, for the old people in the room, hello, uh, hey, Star Wars feels like Star Wars again. Oh, thank God. <laughs> yes. To my defense, the prequels were what was in theaters when I was a youngin. <laughs> and oh, I, hey, I remember the Dark Ages too. Don't even worry about it. <laughs> And I didn't watch Star Wars until I was in my mid-twenties, so I'm more in the McKenzie camp. Ray has made Star Wars click for me in a way that none of the other movies did, including the originals. And I like them fine, but Ray for me, is like, okay. I, I, I get why people have thought Star Wars was amazing. It now clicks. <laughs> There's that, and it's just a lot of different things now, and it's that, and it's Wonder Woman, and... Honestly, I think just the lack of that is why I got really attached to Jupiter Ascending. Even though it's not a good movie, it is a big, dumb space opera movie with a female protagonist and all of the trashy YA I read. Because there is so, there was so little for me to glom onto that I could connect to in that way and I wanted it so bad because I'm such a nerd but I'm so that... glad we went through that list those those lists so people are like oh yeah, oh, yeah that, I remember that, that one so the massive like brimful like spilling over bowl of blue M&M's and the little pool of red M&M's at the bottom of a massive pro- disproportionately large bowl mm. but, oh, and the, the like very big well known ones were Terminator and Aliens, which I was a child with a weak constitution. I couldn't have watched either of those movies. That's they would have traumatized point. me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, if you girls want to watch a, a, a hero in action, watch Aliens. I'm six. Piss yeah. off. <laughs> I was still upset by Terminator 2, and I watched that for the first time last year. Oh. <laughs> but the, the, the other mark of progress that I think there is, is that it's now possible for a 
female-led film to come out not be great and not have everybody turn around and go, well, we're not going to bother with any more now because it's clearly pointless. Yeah. It's yeah. important to remember that like nine out of ten movies are meh to bad. Yeah. Mm. The same logic will apply to female-led movies. We just need to make enough of them that we'll get the amazing ones. Yeah. They don't yeah. all have to be phenomenal. Some of them will be phenomenal to somebody. Most of them will be phenomenal to somebody, but most of them will also be eh, to some people too. There's a couple of other really fantastic moments at the end of uh, Captain Marvel, just to, to finish this one off. She names herself and this is one of the tropes that i love the most when a character especially one who has been pushed down and told who they are by an oppressive patriarchy you hear that mr anderson that is the sound of inevitability it is the sound of your death goodbye mr anderson my name I, I don't think she's ever said the words Carol Danvers up until that point. They really held it back. Maria says your name is Carol Danvers, and it's a, it's a it's an emotional moment. You were crying throughout most of that scene, mm. um, and then at the end, you know, she's she's up against the stolen face of effectively her mentor. It's a violation that the uh, the intelligence looks like Marvell, and again. It's a huge deal that this male character was gender flipped. They they only do it occasionally in Marvel films. The only one other, other one I could think of was the ancient one in um, Doctor Strange. It's very significant that Marvel was a female military scientist who came up with the idea of something that could be used to harm or to protect. She put it in a box and then eventually entrusts Carol with that box. She's recognizing and trusting Carol, passing the chain of feminine power down the line. Whereas in the original comics, an immensely powerful cosmic dude dies and some of his power goes to kind of the sidekick woman. Carol was created to be a badge for feminism, but it was at a time when Marvel weren't entirely sure as a largely male-dominated company what that would entail. More recently, they've handed that over to women who have done a much better job of it. There's also the, the montage of Carol getting up after she keeps falling. And this, there's many fantastic movies where a guy gets back up again after falling down. The Rocky thing about it, it's about how hard you can get hit and keep on coming. Or Batman being told by his dad, Bruce, why do we fall? But why does this one matter? For me, it's because it's flashback. It's because it's not its not so much the significance of her getting back up again in this moment. It's the significance of the fact that she has done it and done it and done it. You said this after we were talking about the film together, but how does this relate to Carol being told to be less emotional? You can push your emotions down for the duration of a crisis. That's fine, because you need to keep a clear head and... Yoda had a point, but having the emotional literacy to be able to bank that and come back to it later and process it properly is an incredibly valuable skill. One of the things that, that Carol has been incredibly highly praised for is being a symbol of resilience and that wonderful sequence where she keeps getting up and keeps getting up and keeps getting up. 
But the way that she is so resilient is because she's able to process those things. And that knowledge that she has been knocked down and got up so many times in her life already, in, in my head, that was why she was able to stand up and say, I do not have to prove anything to you. I have proved myself to myself over and over and over again. And no, I ain't playing ball with you. And I can still stand up again. That's one of that to me was kind of the the film expressing its thesis pretty much. Like this is really the main point that we're trying to make. And the fact that they do it in such a clear cut visual way just makes it that much more powerful, I thought. I love that it encourages the idea that our emotions are really there are connection to humanity. That's where our empathy comes from. So that should be seen as a strength, not a weakness. Empathy and kindness are what connects us to each other. And that's a big, you know, of, of my things that I want in the entertainment and the media that I see nowadays and the things that I consume. That's a big old check mark in, in one of the boxes of, of things that I want to see is encouraging that empathy, encouraging that kindness and the sense of we can cooperate with each other no matter who we are or where we come from. So that was a big old check mark for me personally. Emphasizing the importance of no matter how many times you've been knocked down, you have to stand back up again. That's a really important message to get across, especially now. And it's similarly displayed in Spider-Verse, which has, for another reason, has or ties in with this one, and it's getting up over and over again point in that these are people who have gone through a lot, and specifically gone through a lot because of who they are. And Carol has gone through a lot, specifically because of who she is, and it works just as well here. For me, um, it's... Which of you have seen Buffy? Yes. A couple of episodes. Actually, more like a couple of seasons. Enough to know that I like the ideas more than I like the execution. It was really emotionally taxing. Fair. Absolutely. But it, it very specifically, for me, it puts me in mind of a bit in season seven. There's a montage of, I, I don't remember exactly the wording, but it's basically the very end of Buffy and it's a ton of potentials becoming slayers and it's you you see a very a montage of all these girls doing all kinds of there's a girl getting beat up by her dad there's a girl playing softball there's there's girls studying there's you know all kinds of things you know showing a wide variety of young women can get up will get up can stand up will stand up and it it gave me the very the same feeling of just I am owning my power. I am owning who I am. I am owning my sexuality. I am owning myself. No one else has a right to this. No one else can take this from me. This is mine. It was chills. Just mind-blowing and chills and so powerful. I hate that there's evil. That I was chosen to fight it. I wish a whole lot of the time that I hadn't been... I know a lot of you wish I hadn't been either. This isn't about wishes. This is about choices. I believe we can beat this evil. Not when it comes, not when its army is ready. Now. Right now, you're asking yourself what makes this different. 
What makes us anything more than a bunch of girls being picked off one by one? What if you could have that power? Now. In every generation, one slayer is born. Because a bunch of men who died thousands of years ago made up that rule. They were powerful men. This woman is more powerful than all of them combined. So I say we change the rule. I say my power should be our power. From now on, every girl in the world who might be a slayer will be a slayer. Every girl who could have the power will have the power. Can stand up, will stand up. Every one of us. Make your choice. Are you ready to be strong? I would like to see Marvel proceed beyond this to uh, introduce Kamala in uh, the second film. The idea of... Remember what I said before about a two-girl team-up in an action movie? Uh, you've got the young kids who are a bit about Kamala's age, you know, the, the target audience, who can get with her fangirling out over Carol and have Carol be more prevalent in the film than... Uh, Tony was in Spider-Man Homecoming, but a similar dynamic. The idea that she's the mentor figure. It's a bit early in Carol's career, but we need Kamala now. A Muslim teenage girl superhero who adores Carol and has an unsexy power, I might add. She can, we did a whole episode on uh, Ms. Marvel. She can embiggen her hands and she can make her legs longer. It's basically like Reed Richards, but even more crazy. There's so much value in having, Cam- having Marvel go, yeah, you know what? This is what the shape of the next Captain Marvel is going to be. Obviously, make it a huge amount about Carol's story as well. And you could say, why don't you just give Kamala her own film? But she'd get a lot more interest if Carol is in there as a lot more than a cameo. It really needs to be a team-up. So whether it's Ms. Marvel the film or Captain Marvel 2 colon Ms. Marvel, that's what needs to happen. Also bring in Lockjaw. He's a giant dog and lots of people love puppers. I was actually really quite worried when the Inhumans TV show started because I was like, is this going to be just bland enough to keep going? And are they going to introduce Kamala here? Because they really shouldn't. All Marvel TV leaves me cold and it just seems like the drip tray from what Feige doesn't want. Though you do get some diamonds in the rough. Loads of people love Jessica Jones. Lots of people love Punisher, we're just not going to talk about it. But nobody loved the Inhumans. I've also heard someone say, that, with complete validity, that Monica Rambeau bore the mantle of Captain Marvel. She was like an adult African-American female black superhero with those same powers. And she could be the Ms. Marvel of this universe. But we got a whole bunch of African-American superheroes. Now, I'm not saying it's not important But having a female Muslim superhero is fucking important. Also, Monica's had like 12 titles. She can still be a superhero with her own movie and not be Miss Marvel. Absolutely. I think she was Quasar. (laughs) Yeah, Photon, Quasar. She can be any kind of thing. It could be a trio, frankly. There's no reason why it couldn't be. But Kamala needs to be there. 
and she needs to be. I, I have no doubt that Marvel will do that, but I just wanted to express that that is very important. I need it as soon as possible. Yeah, not just that, but not only is she a huge um, Carol Danvers fangirl, but she's a huge nerd. Yeah, she's uh, she's, she's the idea that they're like, oh, like, this, this girl's a Muslim. She's also a nerd. That's gonna kind of knock the more accepting nerds for six. They'll be like, oh, okay. <laughs> and also, like she, like her family's religious. They have the the rituals that they go through, and they do, the book doesn't just scoff at them. It's it's it. There's like listen to the whole show we do on that. It's it's really great stuff. Sorry, they're religious, but but they're not super conservative. Bingo. Yeah. Like her her parents are very American. They're they're Muslim and they're very religious, but they're very American and they're not you know. They're not just oh no my they don't force her to wear hijab and or the proper term excuse me if I say this incorrectly but they don't force her to dress to cover up completely you know they don't force her to fit a certain mold she's she has crushes and I mean I haven't read the comics but I, I heard your show and I Karu's told me a lot about her and you know she's a very fairly typical teenage girl who also happens to be Muslim. Yeah. Mm. Which is going to be the experience of an awful lot of Muslim teenage girls out there. Yeah. yeah. The hate boys will hit the fucking roof because all of their senses are going to be overwhelmed. It might kill a few of them. Yeah. <laughs> like, Hang on, a woman and a Muslim. <laughs> Just, it's too much. It's too much for a lot of them. But... Do it fearlessly. Do it anyway. They're going to hate it no matter what. Just do it. And also, I really I love Monica Rambeau, and I definitely do want to see her. I do not want to diminish the importance of African-American stars. But every African-American listening will go, yeah, I loved seeing Wakanda. And would I'm, I'm assuming would want Muslim kids to go, yeah, when they see Kamala in the same way. Yeah. They'll want to share that. Are you are you running the carpet tonight? No. No? I'm interviewing. You sorry. are? Are you going to interview me right now or should I interview you? I'm interviewing you. Okay, tell me. What do you got? What are your powers? My powers personally? Yeah. Um, I can eat really hot foods. Like temperature really? hot foods. Yeah, and I can always fall asleep on an airplane. I don't really have any superpowers. That's not true. I know you've got one. I have them. I'm really strong, guys. You're really strong? I bet you are. I'm really strong, but I'm really good at dancing and singing. See, those are all superpowers. What do you mean you don't have any superpowers? You have so many. And you're so young, you're just going to learn that you have more and more. Yeah. Who's your favorite female superhero? I really like Wonder Woman a lot. Really? I do. I do too. Yeah, I think she's super cool. But also all the ladies in Wakanda are pretty cool too. All the Black Panther ladies. Yeah. Yeah. We've got a lot of cool superheroes. Share this episode around, especially if you're a woman. We love the fact that over recent years, our listenership has diversified and brought in more women, more people of color, more members of the LGBTQ community who are comfortable talking with us on Twitter. It seems increasingly now like YouTube is owned by a worrying amount of radicalized right-wing kids. This is the pushback on that. This is where we do something fundamentally progressive. So if you know women who will like this show, tell them. And frankly, if you know boys who would get something out of this that will help them be more supportive, if you think they might find it illuminating, it's just as important, if not more so, that they hear this. 
School of Movies is funded by Patreon. You guys help us pay our bills. And we provide you with the best content we possibly can. Our top-tier $15 patrons get sponsor credit every episode, so thank you too. Abel Savard, Aaron Lecluse, Benjamin Biddle, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Datchler, Dan Mayer, Dave Hickman, Duran Barnett, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Joseph Gluck, Kat Esman, Kevin Otero, Lorraine Chisham, Toby Hatfield, Mark Lush, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Hasco, Nick Ord, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, and Tom Painter. And if you're at the $5 level or higher, then you have access to the bonus feed of your phone. And this weekend, you can download a whole extra hour of meandering chat about Captain Marvel that didn't make the final show. Here's a clip. There's a new creep show series that's being shot right now in Georgia, and I was very fortunate to work on it a couple of weeks ago. Gigantic stiletto heels. I am not even kidding. We were in a, a set that had like, um, I don't know what it was made out of, is either cork or some kind of laminate floor. The heels were so skinny and so tall that my heel actually went through the floor and punctured a <laughs> hole in the set when we were just standing around in between takes. And I had to jump backwards over a couch in these friggin' things. And it was like, I, it was like, I can't do it. I got no, I, I cannot lift enough to clear this thing to do the stunt that you want me to do like it was it was definitely an uphill battle in more ways than one like literally figuratively it's you just can't move in the same way when you don't have the full functionality of your foot and your ankles and everything else what i was getting to was that the end fight in captain marvel brings to a point the thematic resonance of the movie Whereas with Tomb Raider, it's, I punch you in the throat. (laughs) So I'm just really glad that in 18 years we've come on this far. To to the point where women can have as impactful endings as men. It took you fucking long enough. Thank you all for coming on the show, ladies. Where can people find your work? Uh, let's start with Debbie. Um, I am on a uh, YouTube channel with my husband, um, Karu, who's also a regular. We've been regular guests on School of Movies, uh, sequentially-yours.com. And he will talk about comic books and go in depth, and we talk about comic book movies. Um, I'm also on Twitter, uh, best at 8300 I'm very active, love to chat about all kinds of things. I'm Mackenzie. Uh, you can find me personally on Twitter at Kenzie Phoenix, and my podcast is The Rainbow Connection, and we talk about Jim Henson stuff, specifically The Muppets so far, and I do that with my fiancé, uh, Nathan Bertram. 
and Maya. On Twitter, you can find me at Maya Santandrea. Like Debbie, I'm pretty active on there. I check in every once in a while to have conversation with people about various sorts of nonsense. As I have mentioned a couple of times, I hopefully will end up in the final cut of Avengers Endgame, which, of course, everybody's going to go see, so I don't need to tell you. Uh, I'm going to start hard-pushing Doom Patrol on the DC Universe streaming service because it's actually a pretty fun show. Like, there's some good stuff in there. Lots of uh, lots of punching Nazis. So, anytime <laughs> yeah. people are punching Nazis, I'm like, yes! Let's do it. So, uh, And then, of course, the aforementioned Creep Show, that's going to be coming out soon as well. And looks like that's going to be a pretty good time, too. So if you have any sort of nostalgia for the old Creep Show movie or TV series, there's a new one coming out. And it's pretty much all of the crew that are behind The Walking Dead. So they've got some really, really great special effects, makeup people, uh, costumers, etc. So it's a really, really talented crew of people. So pretty excited to be on that. So be on the lookout for that as well. Fantastic. And next week we are continuing our series of dives into the experiences of those who often don't get a voice as we find ourselves in the sunken place of Get Out. And we're going to finish not on uh, Celebrity Skin by Hull, which I played earlier in the uh, podcast, though that was a fantastic track to end on for the uh, film. I'm going to take the opportunity to play a song by Haley Steinfeld, uh, star of Bumblebee. Uh, and it's called Most Girls, and it makes Sharon cry, and I understand why. And if it has any kind of positive effect on you, track down the video and watch it. It's totally worth your time. So, that was Captain Marvel. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And higher, higher further, further, faster, faster baby. baby. I'm glad we got to hang out again. See? You're, you're just... What? <laughs> You're just not like most girls. Um, I, uh, I gotta go. Looking like a princess Some girls Kiss new lips every single night They're staying out late Cause they just celebrating life You know some days you feel so good in your own skin But it's okay if you wanna change the body that you came in Cause you look great when you feel like a damn queen We're all just playing a game in a way trying to win Keep their physique real private Some girls Wear jeans so tight Cause they feel so right yeah. Some girls Every day searching Keep the beach turning Sleeping in late Cause they're
Toast is cut diagonally, I can't eat it. You didn't need that, did you? No, no I didn't, but I enjoyed it. Okay, your turn. Prove you're not a scroll. That's a photon blast. And? A scroll cannot do that. I'm just supposed to take your word for that. 